celebrating success, learning from legends, and growing poppies. This is Tall Poppy Talk with Grace Lewis. Kia ora and welcome to Tall Poppy Talk. Today we have Deidre Farmer Palman. She is a human rights advocacy executive, a founder and executive director of the Restitution Study Group, a writer, a scholar, and a relentless advocate to right centuries of wrong caused from the slave trade for African Americans. Prior to her work in reparations, she began her justice work as an activist for the LGBT community. She's credited for popular popularizing the slavery reparations movement through her groundbreaking research linking various blue chip corporations to the slave trade led to them making a $20 million payment to the African-American community in 2005. Her litigation strategy in a case filed against slave trade corporations for consumer fraud resulted in the first reparations court victory in American history in 2006. She's written a screenplay, she's founded her own business and continues to fight the fight. This is a very active, very real-time lawsuit taking place, and we're going to learn about this case and so much more today. It is a great pleasure and honor to welcome you to Tall Poppy Talk. How are you today? I'm doing great, and thank you so so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation, Grace. (laughs) I'm very eager to learn about what's happening right now. As I said, very active in real time, and I know even this morning, you've been having very important calls and just thank you for taking the time. Yes. Well, right now, um, what's happening is that we are in litigation against the Smithsonian Institution, which is really the United States major repository for cultural artifacts, uh, uh, our history, uh, you know, from, you know, some of the uh, first jets that uh, crossed the skies or or made it anything that made it to the moon from the United States, it is a repository for these very special relics and artifacts. Included amongst those are the Benin bronzes. And the Benin bronzes are uh, cultural relics uh, made in the kingdom of Benin from the 12th century to the 19th century. Um, What we know is that the relics made from the 12th to the 15th century were made with metal that came from Northern Africa. But when that slave trade, when I'm sorry, when that route shut down, the kingdom required that uh, their new trade partners, the Portuguese provide the metal in exchange for the enslaved people that they were purchasing from from the kingdom of Benin. Now the kingdom of Benin is located in present day Nigeria. Nigeria did not exist at the time when these relics were being made. Uh, so, the, you know, the, the nation of Nigeria is new. It's, it's relatively new. It's only from the, from the, from the, the, uh, the actually started in the late, ninth, uh, na- late 1800s, actually, um, after the slave trading ended. Um, now, the relics that we are focused on are from the 16th to the 19th century. And essentially what it was was, there, there was a metal C-shaped object called the Manila that the Portuguese paid to the kingdom of Benin. And then the kingdom melted those down and they made uh, the various, maybe 10,000 relics around the world. Uh, some of them are plaques, some of them are what they call overheads, um, just a variety of, of sculptures and 
some of the artifacts are spiritual bells that are used for ceremonies, uh, but some of them are what we call bronzes. They're not actually these metal sculptures. Uh, some of them today are ivory, wood, and, and uh, leather. And we're not interested in those. We're only interested in the metal because these manilas were paid in exchange for us, our ancestors. And so our ancestors were transferred to the Americas by various different European slave traders uh, included are uh, the Portuguese, the British, the Dutch, as well as American and Spanish. So you know, many of us were transferred over. Uh, and in the United States, most of us ended up in uh, uh, South Carolina. Uh, but most of the captives from the Benin Kingdom ended up in uh, Jamaica, okay? In Jamaica, in the Caribbean. So um, our position is that these relics should not be transferred uh, from the, that particular time period, the 16th and 19th century relics, because they have our ancestors' blood on them. And I know this is what you're working on now very actively, but that same motivation about restoring and fighting the fight for your ancestors that began way back that's been kind of a true consistent value obviously the whole time it's your motivation and I found during a California Department of Justice witness testimony a reparations task force you were discussing this in just February of 2022 and you can find that online on YouTube you explained how you had had a spiritual drawer towards the work that you do with justice. And as we've just heard, you eloquently explained that, but could you explain further and outline your journey to working with reparations? Sure. L listen, my activism really started as an activist in the gay and lesbian community. I'm, I'm, I'm bisexual, you know, I'm married to a, a guy, but there was a time when I dated girls too, you know, so, you know, so my activism started there. Um, and, um, you know, the interesting thing is that I was super tongue-tied back then. I couldn't, I could barely speak in, in, in an event like this, for example. But um, as time grew on, I, I began to feel a little bit more comfortable doing public speaking. And uh, I was invited into a burial ground. I actually worked in a press office. I, I was invited into a burial ground in Lower Manhattan um, where uh, they had discovered uh, uh, the remains of first-generation Africans um, who had been enslaved in New York. The burial ground was set aside because it was outside Wall Street, so this was considered invaluable land. But the location, if you were going to go down there now, there are a lot of, uh, of markers now. You know, there's sculptures and, and mm -hmm. there's a whole uh, memorial set up at Dwayne and Elk Streets. There had never been a building sitting on this particular plot of land, but they were about to build a parking pavilion for the federal office, uh, for a new federal office building. They broke ground and they ran into the actual skeletal remains. I was invited in because actually I was, I was involved with organizing women drummers for uh, something at the Gay and Lesbian Community Center. And so I was invited in because I knew all these drummers and somebody wanted to make sure that there were male and female drummers represented. So, you know, I, I came in and I made sure there were lots of, of women drummers. And um, in the vigil that we held there was for 24 hours, but the idea was to call media attention 
to the people who had been buried there. Now I had a chance to go in to one of the uh, to to the burial ground, uh, put on a hard hat and all of the drama. The first thing I saw when I got in there was uh, was a um, altar, an altar that had been set up by someone who was a spiritual guide, and his his job was to look out for the dead. Okay. And, and so he explained that what that was. It was an altar and all of the um, archeologists who were in the site working with toothbrushes and toothpicks, believe it or not, this is how they excavated these bones. These people were, were buried. The, the burial ground was from, I believe this the 1700. So it's an 18th century burial ground. So, you know, the, the remains were very fragile. The, the, the wooden um, coffins had disintegrated. So, you know, they were basically brushing away uh, wood that had become almost like soil. And, and I, you know, I, I saw one of the skeletal remains exposed and the person, the skeleton looked like it was screaming. And I, I tell you, it really, it really shocked me. I, you know, I, I asked, you know, what, what happened? Did this person die screaming? And I was told that they, that they actually um, we're not screaming, but what happened was the the muscle, as the muscle deteriorated in the grave, yeah. the jaw opened up. But honestly, it wasn't the case with all of the remains. This one looked like they died screaming, and and, and that that image sort of sticks with me. But I was inspired from being brought into that burial ground to to go to law school and find a case for reparations. You know, I just felt there were there were 20,000 bodies there. Some of them were mass graves. And they were brought in at Wall Street and I was told that they were the the stock that was exchanged. And uh, and I said, "Okay, well then we need to start this research." And 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 that's what I did. I wrote I wrote about that in my personal statement for law school and and miraculously got accepted somewhere <laughs> to pursue a case for reparations. So that's that's where it started. And mm -hmm. I, from reading your screenplay, I, I'm aware that it wasn't the easiest process either to get into law school, as many people can appreciate. But obviously having that personal statement, having that very shocking kind of resonating experience at the burial ground there's no it's very impactful and I know later on you actually found a personal connection how how did you feel when you realized that you yourself could be traced you had a tribe that you could trace back through DNA testing what was that experience like when when you found yourself connected right well you know at the time okay we're talking about Oh, probably you guys weren't, you weren't even born then. I, it was, it was 1992 when I went into the burial ground, probably 1994 when I started law school. Um, we didn't have the DNA testing, but in the, in the goal to develop a law, a case for reparations, I, there was a recent decision uh, in California that basically said that, you know, you cannot pursue reparations against the government because the government has sovereign immunity. In other words, it has to give permission for it to be sued. And so because it had not done that, um, there was no way 
to pursue them. I mean, since then, I've, we've learned other tricks to do it, but you, you can't, you can sue, but you can't sue for any money, you know? And, and of course, that's essentially what we're doing now. We're not suing the Smithsonian for money. And note, the Smithsonian is a government entity, just like the regular federal government has sovereign immunity. Um, Smithsonian has sovereign immunity as well, but our case is not for money. And that's why we are able to pursue the action that, that we are pursuing right now. But um, what I realized in law school was that if I pursued private entities, corporations and, and the like, that that would be a, a type of, we could make an argument in that way. And so that's what we did. Um, so I graduated in 99, in 2000, I began pursuing the companies. And uh, by 2002, we filed a class action against 20 corporations. It was became narrowed down to 17 for a variety of different reasons, mergers and uh, some companies just going out of business in general. But it ended up being 17 companies that included insurance companies like Aetna, Life, uh, New York Life Insurance, uh, Internet, uh, ING, uh, uh, and also banks like uh, today it's called Bank of America. Back then it was called Fleet Boston, um, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Lehman Brothers, just some of the top uh, Chase, Chase Manhattan Bank, some of the top banks and insurance companies in the world, and some tobacco companies, R.J. Reynolds, um, um, uh, Robert, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, oh, gosh. Anyway, let's stop right there. Um, <laughs> so many of these companies don't exist anymore. So let's just say that this is these are the ones. But um, bottom line is that we had a victory and, and it's a partial victory, I have to say, but it's historic because there had never been any kind of uh, reparations victory. But essentially what happened was we had a variety of causes of action. Some of them were human rights act, uh, causes of action. Basically the slavery was a crime against humanity and that these entities profited and that we, uh, we are holding them accountable for uh, profiting from crimes against humanity and that we wanted to disgorge the profits uh, and create a trust fund to, to deal with the harms that we suffer from today, the poverty, the, um, the improving our education, our health care, and, and so many other uh, housing, things that we really need. Um, so um, the other side of the other causes of actions we had what had to do with consumer fraud just present day lying about their role in slavery. And that is how we won uh, the argument. We didn't win any money because we didn't have enough money to actually litigate the consumer fraud cases. Um, for some reason, you know, well, if you read my screenplay, you know why. There was a lot of competition within the African-American community. And this is something that I'm learning that sometimes we can be our own worst enemies there's the intellectual competition, and then there's people getting bought off to, you know, to not be supportive of, of, of folks who are doing the work. Just so many issues um, come into play that to slow the momentum and really stop our progress. It's, it's a miracle that anything gets accomplished when, when you see how divided we become and how we act against our own best interests. Nevertheless, we have the victories on the books and, uh, and we plan to, in the near future, utilize that uh, to move forward with uh, future cases. But where we are today, 
with the Benin bronzes. The, the issue is that the Smithsonian is transferring these relics uh, without um, the law, <laughs> without being in, in, in non-compliance with federal law. And uh, the Benin bronzes are 10,000 uh, iconic relics made in the kingdom of Benin. Some of them, once again, are made out of metal. Um, uh, and some of them are leather, wood, and ivory. We're not interested in those leather, wood, and ivory. We're only interested in the metal ones made between the 16th and the 19th century. Um, they're spread around at museums all over the world because when the Benin Kingdom attacked unarmed British soldiers and about 250 African pilots, they actually massacred them and they were unarmed coming in to address violations of trade uh, treaties that they had established with the Kingdom of Benin. Um, the, the British uh, was, was slaughtered and they sent troops in to retaliate. I mean, it was a war that was declared. And unfortunately, this part of the story is never told. All you ever hear is the moment when the Benin Kingdom gets sacked, as if that's where it started. But that's not where it started. I mean, they literally massacred over 250 people, about 259 people who were unarmed. And I think it's a shame that they hide that part of the story. The bronzes were taken to pay for the war effort that the British felt obligated to pursue. Now, one of the issues that the British wanted to chat with the Oba of Benin about was their continued violation of the treaty, the aspects of the treaty. Number one, they would some, they would, the treaty was in part to sell products like palm oil. Well, the kingdom had been engaged in price fixing with other um, folks who were trading palm oil. And, and so the, the British wanted to address that. In addition, the kingdom continued to engage in human sacrifice and uh, slave trading in violation of that same treaty. They were supposed to stop. And the human sacrifice was a part of their religious practice. And just let me just give you an example of what, what that meant. It meant that, and you can see this in a document, for example, if you visit my um, my uh, our website or my Twitter page, you'll see images of women, for example, being garroted and hung on fences, uh, sacrifice to stop the rain or sacrifice to start the rain. If an Oba dies, so every time one of these overheads were made, believe it or not, they were made after that royal family member died. For each one of those overheads, you can count as many as 100 people who died with them. They would bury the servants alive with the royal family member who died. So they were all forced to go into a hole and they would check over a period of week to see if everyone had died yet, but no one was allowed to survive when that royal died. So I don't know how many overheads there are, but note, for every one, you got probably anywhere between 80 and 100, 100 servants that were buried alive with them. That was for the whole duration of the time that these cultural relics were made. Now, in addition to that, there were times when 
folks were just slaughtered for whatever reason. For example, when the uh, expedition was taking place, the, uh, the British were visiting and the Oba said, listen, I'm busy, I'm doing my, my father's business. And what that meant was that he was engaged in a ceremony involving human sacrifice. And what we know today is that that sacrifice was involved about 250 enslaved people who were slaughtered on altars containing these overheads in sacrifice for war power. And that's really important because whether there was some real magic that gave them strength, they certainly defeated you know, all those unarmed people, right? Um, they felt the sense of empowerment from these ceremonies. It was their religion, you know, we respect people's religious practices, but it involved killing people. And, um, and so, you know, I personally think taking the bronzes that they needed for these ceremonies was justified. It saved a lot of lives. And today I get calls from Nigerians who are worried that these bronzes are being reassembled. And what is it that they're going to do? Why are they talking? They, they do say they want the bronzes because it's their religious culture. Are they gonna be reassembling these bronzes to continue uh, practices that many of us won't agree with? One thing we do know that's happening in um, Edo state, which is where the kingdom of Benin was located. No, the kingdom of Benin no longer exists. So the entities that are that we are engaged in, uh, I guess, a tug of war with over the bronzes, um, they are the descendants of the people who were the slave traders. So we, so we just basically refer to them as the slave trader heirs. Okay, they are they want the bronzes returned um, because they say they made them, and of course we know that they didn't make them alone. We helped make them because our ancestors supplied the metal that, that made them. We, we supplied the metal and they provided the artisans. So it's, you know, you have the labor and you have the materials. That's, that's what makes a thing, you know, the labor and materials. And so we played a role and we feel that we should at least have some of them wherever we are because of slavery, wherever we are. But the thing that's still happening in Nido State is slave trafficking. They have never stopped the practice has been continuous since uh, the, the 15th century, since the, you know when, when they started trading with the Portuguese. The 16th century is our concern because that's when they started trading for these manilas, for the manilas that they made the bronzes with. So it's, it's a continuous thing and we feel that they get rewarded for slave trading if they get these relics back. I mean, why should they get back something that they acquired selling people into the slave trade? Now they would argue, well, we made them, we made them, but the bottom line is that they did not make them alone. We've and helped make them. <laughs> it's, yeah, and I'm interested in the fact that you're saying the story isn't told, not in its entirety, the full hasn't being discussed or it's been censored in different ways from being fully exposed. Um, so I'm hopeful that this even can serve as a storytelling moment for people to learn the truth. And it interests me because I know in previous reparations efforts, like back in the 2000s, the global press has been a tool for you in many pursuits of justice. The media, they're able to spread the word, they can expand exposure. But have you found that the role of the press has evolved 
over time and perhaps they've become less outspoken or confident in spreading the full truth? Well, the issue around the Benin bronzes is special, I would say. Um, the media has not, well, let me just say, the tide is turning, okay? What, what was necessary was uh, education about the history um, because the history has been withheld, has been hidden for so long. A lot of the press, you know, they're thinking, oh, these must go back to Nigeria because they were taken in such a brutal way. They only know a, the story that the Nigerians want told. They don't really know the truth. And, um, and so that's, I believe that's the, the reason why the media has not been so helpful. Um, but as I said, things are improving. We recently were featured in the New York Times, a little bit about who we are and what we, what we stand for. And that's enough to get, to get the word out there a little bit more. We've been trying since March, and it's December now. Okay, we've been trying since March of this year, 2022, um, to get the media to cover our demand. You know, we went to the Smithsonian, and as soon as we saw that they were talking about returning these relics, we went to ask for a meeting, and we wanted the press to know the slave trade history. The reason why I know the history is because my last paper in law school was about the Benin bronzes. You know, I, I wanted to build a case for returning them. And during that research, I learned about the Manilas and how they were exchanged for us. But, and one thing you mentioned a little while ago about the DNA. At the time, when I, in 1999, when I was finishing my studies, there was no DNA. So learning about these relics, you know, meant, okay, Nigeria, you know, but I felt no connection. But by 2004, we started to have a publicly accessible DNA testing. And that has, helped us to have some idea of where we come from in Africa. You can, I know it's, it's hard to imagine that there are people who have no clue where we come from. And this is the, the reason, this was a deliberate practice. They felt it was necessary to do in order to prevent revolution. You know, they had to mix up the different enslaved people so that we were not really with folks from our same ethnic group so that we could not communicate, so we could not speak. Um, they changed our names. They, you know, we we lost. We would we were really uh, wiped completely clear of any knowledge of where we come from. Okay, we were in part we were never intended to survive, but definitely never intended to return. And so these DNA tests made it possible for us to to know that we're connected to Nigeria. So maybe there's something with the Benin bronzes, but. I'll take it a step further with me because I've taken so many different types of DNA tests. Uh, they are constantly evolving. And so in March of this year, I took a look at one of my uh, DNA tests and there was additional information provided from the, you know, the initial, okay, you have some DNA from Nigeria, from Sierra Leone, from Ghana. It got very specific. It literally shows where the people are in Nigeria today that my DNA matches, okay? So these are my family members that are still there because our DNA matches. And they, the way that the tests work is that they choose people to test in Africa who have been there for in, from time immemorial, okay? So my DNA shows up on two ports that were controlled by the Kingdom of Benin for 300 years, for the whole duration of the slave trade. 
The kingdom of Benin controlled these ports, Lagos and Wari. Okay, so that's a nice, I mean, so, and they controlled everything in between. Okay, so when they weren't actually doing the slave trading themselves, they allowed others to trade and, and, and those folks had to pay tribute to the kingdom. So, you know, while we, in our litigation, we may identify 103,000 uh, 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 103, people who were enslaved by the Benin Kingdom because it shows up in the transatlantic slave trade database. The most potent ports that they control, we don't have any numbers for, okay? So, they, you know, they didn't document very well, but we, we are able to glean information from some of the other countries that were engaged in trade but nothing from the Benin Kingdom. So we see 103,000. Um, so we know, we have an idea, we, and, and, but we know it's many, many more than 103,000, okay? Uh, but one thing for sure we know is that my ancestors were amongst those people. And in fact, we know that they ended up once again in, Char in Charleston, South Carolina, and largely in Jamaica and other Caribbean nations. So. We're from Charleston, we're, we're from South Carolina. So I know, I know my connection, okay. Many people <laughs> don't know the connection, right? Like you've had access to these DNA testing platforms or databases. Can just anyone access it? Is there, what's the path sure. to doing that? Sure, okay, first of all, the DNA test, you know, during holiday times, you can take them for $59. You know, so if you're willing to do it, you know, you, you, you know, you can, you know, a lot of folks are afraid to take DNA tests, but I, I, I advocate that people should take them because you can learn other things like what kind of health problems you have, and then you can engage in a little epigenetics, uh, structure your diet in a way that can prolong your life, you know, because there are things sitting that like ticking bombs. But for us, we use those DNA tests to, to know that we are connected to a place like Nigeria. And, and like I said, with me, uh, the tests are constantly evolving. And now they're so specific that they, with me, they show me exactly we're on the map. And that was just a revelation for me. So I understood at that moment, my God, you know, I, I, I feel it's all very spiritual for me that I should actually, you know, be one of, I guess, one of very few people in the world who paid attention to this fact about these relics. Um, uh, uh, you know, about these Manilas and the connection. It's, it's, to me, it's just fascinating that right now we are the only Af Black organization that's engaged in this effort. There are some folks who are supportive at this time, but, um, you know, they're not willing to, to stand up uh, in the way that we are. And, you know, I, I feel I was being prepared for this since 1999 and you know, this is the moment that I was being prepared for. I didn't, you know, I didn't know. I just, I was just doing the things that I should be doing. And one of those things was that we, we created a whole entity within our organization that tests African nationals to connect them to their family members here, okay? I, I actually applied for a Fulbright to do the testing in Nigeria, but I did not get that Fulbright. <laughs> That's unfortunate. I, I, I wasn't thinking that I would need it for this, but, but um, you know, now I realize, you know, some things are beyond our control. You know, God and the ancestors sort of had me to 
to know I need to pay attention to that. But I've been invited to Nigeria um, to talk about using DNA to unite um, African-Americans and others in the diaspora, like slave, slave descendants, with their homeland, like for, for dual citizenship. And, uh, and they invited me. I made the, the pitch. I let them know you can make money off these passports. You can raise money for your national you know, treasury to, you know, improve the country. They weren't interested, you know, they, they're not interested in us, but they want to get these bronzes back, you know what I mean, which I find interesting. And, and of course, we, we did reach out to them to have a conversation about these bronzes and how we can share them, why it's important for us to share them. It's the right thing to do. And they have rejected meeting with us. Okay. Now we, we did get a meeting with the OBA's advisor. The OBA Benin's advisor did sit with us. We had a, a Zoom chat and she agreed. I mean, she said that our, 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 our claim is legitimate, you know, and her position was, but you know, the nation is handling this for us. So you have to speak to the people in charge. And then that's where, you know, that's where the, the buck stopped nothing moved with the people in charge. But, um, you know, I'm optimistic about our effort. Um, I think that our appeal will be successful. Uh, you know, my hope is that we can get a substantial amount more of public education through the media. As I said, we are getting some coverage, not still not enough in the United States, you know, um, but, uh, I, I remain hopeful. I mean, at one point, we weren't getting coverage anywhere. And, and let me just say, the British are doing a phenomenal job of coverage. The Germans are as well. Um, but the nations have, you know, their own uh, moral crises, you know. Germany, you know, feels guilty for everything, even things that have nothing to do with them. Uh, and they, they may have been engaged in colonialism in Africa, but they definitely did not colonize Nigeria, but they hold very closely as their motivation for relentlessly returning as many relics as possible, that they want to give a, make it clear that they oppose colonialism. And my position is, you know, you guys were enslaving folks in uh, Southern Africa. You didn't enslave the folks or you didn't colonize, um, I'm sorry, they colonized Southern Nigeria, they did not colonize Nigeria. But what they did do is they, they actually were the ones that created the Manilas for the Portuguese who began the slave trading. They traced the metal to the Hartz Mountain in Germany. So my position is that Germany, they have a, a duty to us, the descendants of the people who were enslaved. Um, they don't have a duty to Nigeria because of British colonialism. Um, they should at least acknowledge us and allow uh, some of the bronzes, especially the ones that we paid for uh, to remain in, in Germany. And why that's important to me is because my husband is German. My daughter is African-American and German. She's a German now, she has dual citizenship. And there's a, we have a home in Frankfurt and and the museum is walking distance from our house that currently holds the Benin bronzes. But um, they, they seem to be uh, on, a, on a, a mission to return as many as, as possible. And in fact, they are at this very moment handing over bronzes 
in uh, in Nigeria right now. Just a a, a a committee of German museum leaders are have traveled to Nigeria to personally return these relics. And my hope is, you know, I'm, I was kind of glad that they went personally because I think they'll have an opportunity to get a sense of the chaos that's there. Hopefully, I mean, once you know, listen, the, they can't go anywhere without armed security. I know because. 10, 15 years ago when I was there, we couldn't go anywhere without armed security, you know, machine guns. This is, this is how you have to travel as a tourist there. The United States warns against travel to Nigeria. And of course it's because they, you can be kidnapped um, for sex slavery or for your organs. You know, this is, this is the reality of life in Nigeria right now, and especially in Benin. There's a lot. Yeah, I'm trying to digest this. <laughs> Thank you. Obviously, with the restitution study group and the work you're doing, that's a lot to try to process and keep up with and just the magnitude of the situation I cannot really comprehend. And I know that the restitution study group does engage in research as well as litigation against companies that are complicit in slavery with right now with the Smithsonian lawsuit. In addition, you've created this DNA connecting effort process so that people can have that connection, like so many different moving parts. And I was just curious, what have your experiences been when you've maybe partnered with other organizations? Like this is a lot to do. And I know that the restitution study group does partner with other groups occasionally, other organizations. So have you ever had to compromise on your preferred style or with the methodology to work with other organizations when you're partnering? Well, no, I, I'm not willing to compromise, I'm gonna be honest. Um, I, I wanna first, I, I will share information enough to see if someone is really interested in partnering or are they, looking to run ahead and try to beat us to the punch, even though they don't have enough information. And, and unfortunately, the latter is what I have seen. Um, so, I mean, it's really, it's so tricky. These, you know, my, my position is that I go where my heart is and really where I feel I'm spiritually guided. And these topics that we've focused on within the movement, have been very, very sexy. I'm just gonna be honest with you. They're really sexy and folks are like, wow, I wanna do that. And rather than just trying to be cooperative, people wanna own the issue. And so unfortunately, uh, yeah, I do have to be very careful because folks can really ruin the whole thing if they're trying to make a name for themselves with just a little piece of the puzzle. You know what I mean? And that's what, that's unfortunately what happens. Now, what I, what I, you know, like with any, I, I'll say with any mom, any mother of a thing, of a child, I know with my daughter, I have to only share with her what I think she can handle at the moment. I've seen, I've seen, you know, I've watched her grow up, so I know she can handle this much. And that's, that's how I, I manage uh, at this point. So generally speaking, when I, when I bring people together, um, who are going to play some role, supportive, or they have some interest? They may be researching, you know, something that we, you know, the, something that we opened up, an issue that we opened up. How I how I work is, you know, I let them know. Listen, we're doing this thing over here, 
And we're gonna go up to this point. And at that point, we're gonna make sure you're sitting with us, okay? And I just, I want, I try to make sure everyone knows we're not interested in, uh, you know, being the stars of the show. You know, we're only the star to the extent that it's necessary to have one person telling this story and fighting uh, so that there's consistency in, in the message and also that, you know, we have facts that we are supporting in litigation. So you can't have everyone speaking on a thing. You really have to be consistent. But I try to make sure everyone knows that when we celebrate, everyone is welcome to the table. And because this is not, it's not for me. I, I'm, 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 I'm doing well, personally. Personally, we're fine. We don't need anything. This is really a, a, a duty I feel, uh, and, and I feel very blessed to be able to deliver to the world. So this is, I mean, my motivation is to make a difference. I believe that I'm being guided for a reason. Uh, and, um, and, and, and that's what it comes down to. And no, you know, I, I received funding for the first time last year from, from a foundation. Today, th this year we got funded again. And of course, all of my salary is going to the litigation. I mean, I don't even collect the salary. Today I said, okay, I'm gonna get my daughter a Christmas gift. So I'm gonna take some of my salary and I feel guilty taking the money and giving it, give, you know, giving it to my daughter for a Christmas gift. But, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, this is what it's for, you know? And so, we, you know, we're hiring legal teams and yeah, and I'm writing the check out of my own account because the organization doesn't really get funded for lawyers, you know, I get funded to do research and, and to pull people together. And that's what I want, also wanna say. I hire experts to do certain things. For example, we have a short film. So I hired a filmmaker to direct and produce. I mean, I wrote the script, uh, but he pulled it all together. I hire researchers to do other things, scholars, you know, I, some, some of the best, I go for the best in the world to do certain things. So for our litigation, uh, we have one of the foremost, two of the foremost experts on slavery. One that focuses largely on Nigeria uh, and, uh, and another that focuses on the transatlantic slave trade. And he's an African guy, we have Canadian and African. But we, we just bring in experts to do the work. And so that's, that's, that's really how we function. So yeah, you know, I thought I was gonna finally make some money um, but I mean, my salary is ridiculous, ridiculously small anyway, but we're managing, you know, we're getting, we're getting the, the work done. And so I, I feel very optimistic, but just in terms of partnerships, everyone has something to contribute. And listen, I'm dealing with some wonderful organization, you're brilliant, um, articulate activists. And they're, I, as far as I know, they're dealing with slightly different aspects of the same thing. I think they can all be brought together at some point, but um, you know, I still have to be guarded. It's really important to, to protect your information because folks can, can spoil it, yeah. Yes, and that sort of ties into this question I have. The initiative behind Tall Poppy Talk, which is the podcast, is to tackle primarily in New Zealand and Australia and sometimes in England, there's this concept or social phenomenon called Tall Poppy Syndrome. So. Tall poppies, someone like yourself, who is doing well, is rising above, is spearheading. We like to chop them down. What I was 
hoping to do with the podcast is to speak to tall poppies someone like yourself who is really just charging ahead doing your own thing like being a tall poppy advocating shining whatever that is and whatever specialty I've spoken to sports people I'm now speaking to you as an advocate like all over the spectrum but the common thread is that people do experience this sense of whether it be called bullying in America or chopping down or kind of pigeonholing and keeping people where you think they should be and when I was reading your screenplay I there was a quote where you said were you in in a situation I can't precisely remember but you were saying you got all that wisdom to pass on I wish you would rather than competing with me and cutting me down and that ties to this idea of tall poppy syndrome of not sharing the wisdom just cutting them down so I felt like this did lend itself to your experiences, plural. And so my question is, how do you persevere when those around you do cut you down instead of sharing their wisdom and access with you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I take a moment to just focus on what this is about. Um, this is about my ancestors and it's about the next generation is about the children. Um, I know that what I'm able to uncover through my research and my um, advocacy is unique and it's necessary. And that's the important thing. You know, I, 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 I know from past experience that, yeah, I'm not gonna be supported. And, and, and with, the, with the Benin Bronzes, it's a similar situation. There's minimal support. Um, but you know, 20 years later, from the corporate stuff, you, you cannot even imagine how many folks out there eating up all of the work that I did. Congress is holding hearings now. They're creating laws that are um, mimicking the laws that were created with my assistance 20 years ago. You know, they're, they're creating a, a law that would require companies to report on their connection to slavery. Now that the first law was passed by Tom Hayden out of California because um, he heard about me and right away he introduced a bill. And so that first slavery ever disclosure law was passed. So now Congress is holding these hearings. They're not inviting me, right? And of course it turns out that the reason why they're not inviting me is because they have their own agenda for what they want to happen with the money that maybe doesn't, that's not consistent with mine they would like for the companies that I've exposed, right? That whole area that I've you know, spent my own money for 20 years fighting. They want those companies to invest in historically black colleges and universities. Now, historically black colleges and universities were founded for freed enslaved people to attend. And then later on for, you know, for descendants of enslaved Africans to attend here in the United States. I don't know how many there are, but there are quite a number of them. But interestingly, when I applied to law school, I applied to one and I was not accepted. Any others like me that would have made a difference for us. Look at this. You know, this is what the girl did that you didn't want at your historically black college. This is what she did. How many more of us who could be leading the nation, right? That they rejected, that they, they turned away. I really don't want it to go to this, this type of university because I believe just like me, many others who are useful to the community 
don't go to those schools, right? They don't get in or they don't go. Um, they need to be available, the funds need to be available to us wherever we go. So the last place I would want to see them pigeon held is, is with these universities. Um, that's one. The other thing is that for me, my agenda is, yeah, I want education, but I, I believe in helping college students, but I believe that the real difference in our education starts early on, you know? I mean, I know what tutoring did for my my daughter and tutoring for my nieces and nephews, my goodness, just a few months of tutoring, they're honest students. They were like struggling and now they're honest students with just a few months of tutoring. And, you know, we don't, you know, black folks don't get to do that very often. You know, tutors are expensive, you know, $25 an hour, $50 a session. I mean, it really adds up. Um, and we cannot afford that luxury. So I would rather see those resources go to, um, some kind of tutoring program. Maybe and then folks, my kids were tutored virtually. My my, you know, my grandnieces and they were tutored virtually and it still made a difference. They didn't have to be sitting in the same room with someone. So that I want to see the kids get the little kids get it. That way they can go to the best schools in the world, anywhere, you know? Um, also for housing, I mean, who's who can even sit comfortably in school if they're struggling? for a place to live, you know, they need housing and that would be my priority. So my priorities are different from the members of Congress. Personally, I think you're in Congress, you guys pass a law and, 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 and give more money to the historically black colleges and universities. You don't have to take this, this money from the corporations. I mean, you know, put some more money in the budget from the federal budget, right? I mean, come on now, but that's the kind of headache, you know, that I'm dealing with with folks who are trying to run ahead of me, and and they don't, and and when I listen to the he the hearings, they're not even factual, you know. They're you know saying things like, "Oh, it was legal at the time," and of course, my research has uncovered that many of these entities were engaged in illegal slave trading, so it wasn't necessarily legal. And of course, even with any trading, why is it legal to who? Legal to the people who say it's legal? I mean, my goodness, not everyone engaged in slave trading, you know, not everyone, you know, this is a handful of greedy cutthroats that did it, you know, because slave trading was very organized. Um, so, um, yeah, I hope I've answered your question. Help me if I've, if I've left something out. <laughs> no, no, certainly you did. And essentially what I'm gathering from that is when people do cut you down or when you are feel like you've been limited restricted you just return back to what your drive is what the real purpose and goal and overarching reason for what you do what you do and that's how you persevere absolutely there's a mission here there's a reason it's logical I grew up very poor you know we were we were six children and we shared one bedroom probably the size of this little room that I'm in right now and I know that people need uh, things and, you know, a lot of folks, you know, do very well and they lose touch. And it's, um, some of the folks I'm meeting that are advocates, they, they, they're coming from wealth. I mean, Black folks who are coming from wealthy families. So they've never really, they don't really know what it means to, to struggle. You know, they don't know what it means, you know, to, you know, I mean, really, I've, we've, we've been very poor. So in my family, they, my sisters always say, oh, don't say that we were poor, but we were poor. <laughs> Okay, so, um, you know, um, 
Yeah, I keep my eyes on the prize. I don't lose touch with what this is about. And of course, I have a board. And my board members are very down-to-earth, real folks. And they're just like, get back in there. Uh, don't pay attention to this. And, you know, they, you know, they encourage me. So I get encouragement, um, you know, from, from board members, from family, from advisors. I, you know, I have a lot of folks um, who, who, who advise me unofficially um, and wise people that I trust. Um, who, you know, who, who are elders, who have been out there, they've seen it all. And of course, I've seen enough, enough too. I mean, after the corporate complicity issues where folks were not supportive, you know, I'm not surprised that I'm not getting any, uh, you know, not much support with the Benin Bonds. The people look very closeted about their support. They're not publicly supportive. Um, and, uh, but some are. Some are, and I mean, they're out there, you know, I have, you know, some British guys, boy, these, these, these guys are troopers. <laughs> they're out there on the front line with me. And I love that, I love that. And I, I do look for allies. Not all the allies are gonna be from within the community. Um, yes. From the, within the black community. They're coming from all kinds of places I never would have expected. Even from, even Germany, just folks are coming on board and they're willing to do, you know, whatever, but nobody has any money. And that's our big challenge, you know, we could use more money for that. I'm, I'm you know, I, like I said, I'm spending my own salary and soon I'll be spending my savings. So, you know, but you know, I, I tell you when I, I told my daughter, cause she and I, you know, we, we have our own special fund that we've been generating together. I said, you know, we're gonna have to spend some of this money. How do you feel about that? And she was like, ah, oh, all right, let's do what we have to do. And I'm really glad that she has that attitude, you know. She's understanding, she's learning that you 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 put your money where your mouth is. If you really believe in it, you get out there and you do what you have to do to fight it. You fight that fight the cause. And that and you know, she's seen it all her life, you know. Yeah. She must be very lucky, not lucky, proud as well to have you as a mom. That's quite yeah. the role model. Yeah. Yeah, when I see her posting on her Instagram feed, you know, my mom's, you know, here's my mom's thing, sign her petition. I'm like, there we go. <laughs> yes. And yeah, it is. <laughs> and because it, it's, it's not ancient history, right? It's living history that you're fighting the causes. They're so profoundly important, but I know in doing so you've, you've suffered a verbal assault and being physically threatened sometimes doing what you're doing. And I found an archived interview from March of 2002 and the interviewer asked what, what drives you? And you responded with justice. I'd like mm -hmm. to see that the truth is told and that these corporations that committed horrendous acts against my ancestors pay restitution. They should not be able to keep assets they acquired stealing people and stealing labor. And that, yeah, that's, it's pretty heavy, that quote, because it's powerful. And so despite the significant real fear-mongering that you've experienced from multi-billion dollar corporations and institutions uh you continue to fight on for justice and you mentioned the support of your family the advisors the people that you do work with that are on the front line fighting with you and I wanted to know I was going to ask how you keep going but I feel like you kind of touched upon that but if you could maybe delve a little deeper in how you keep going when there have been very real active like assaults to your personal safety. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, 
you know, I, I just, there, there are so many things that we can do in life and be threatened. You know, I, I thought to myself, oh, I would never want to practice criminal law. You know, I don't want to be responsible for putting people in jail, you know, or making a mistake and losing a case and somebody goes to jail. You know, I don't want to get involved with that, you know, but folks get up and they do that. And think about firemen who run into buildings and, and police officers who are dodging bullets. You know, there's so many careers. There's almost very few things you can do without putting your life on the line. Um, doctors who are treating patients, remember during the, you know, the crazy part of the pandemic, you know, it's, it's like anything worth doing, you know, you, you put your life at risk to a certain degree. You know what I mean? And so I feel that this is just another one of those things that maybe, you know, I might even be a little safer than some of these other folks, you know, with what I'm doing, right? Um, but, you know, ultimately I think I will be successful and I'm driven by that because I feel very strongly that you just keep, you keep wearing away at it. If you just keep pushing it and pushing and pushing, it's gonna get through. So for me, it's like, you know, I got this one right in the middle here. I just have to push a little further and it'll be done. And that's, and that's really um, what makes the difference. The progress, the people who come forward and just the reminders of the people who really need what it is uh, that, that I'm fighting for. And that, that's, that's, that's what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. And for people listening or seeing this who aren't familiar with the work you do in the restitution study group, how can they find you? Well, we have a website, so you can just Google restitution study group and you will, you will get a link. Um, the link is a little more complicated to say. And if you have a, a link connected to this, um, yep. you can, you can indicate that. I wasn't thinking about how complex it is to convey rsgincorp.com. I just thought, oh, yeah, everyone can say that, but it's rsgincorp dot com or dot org um, yeah. restitution study group incorporated mm -hmm. and i'll make sure that we have access to that through the links that i use i want to thank you so much for spending the time to explain to me and the listeners what it is you're doing right now what it is that you've done and how you are sharing some of those awesome personality traits you have that have kept you going over decades we're talking decades of fighting this advocacy fight and that is also very important so thank you for sharing that and I have one question left that seems almost um it's uh seems silly to bring it up when we've been discussing such important profound topics that we have mm -hmm. but the end of each podcast I have been asking each guest if you could just have one meal only eat one meal for the rest of your life. What are you going to eat? God. Mm. Um, that's a good question because, you know, my favorite meals change. Okay. Without any consequences. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Without um, any consequences. Hmm. Well, okay. I mean, I love, I love Mexican, but I think it would probably be uh, salmon glazed with uh, a chili sweet sauce, uh, garlic mashed potatoes, and dried sauteed string beans. 
That's what I think it would be. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> You've painted a picture on that one. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Now, I like to sometimes finish off like that because especially in this situation when we've discussed the very serious work you're doing, to add that little personality at the end. To be <laughs> she, is, she is a complex woman. And although this is the hugest part of your identity and what it is that you do, um, sometimes it just gives some a broader scope of who you are as a person. So I cannot thank you enough. And I'm very intrigued what's going to continue to evolve with this Smithsonian situation right now. Yeah. Now, one thing that I didn't mention is that you know, with the Smithsonian and all of the institutions that hold the Benin bronzes, we believe that descendants of enslaved Africans should have access to these relics to study them. Um, there's a lot that we can learn knowing the time period in which they were made, learning about the various battles, who the overhead is. Not all of them are overheads. Some of them are the heads of royalty that were defeated in certain battles that were you know killed in certain battles and so we believe that we will learn more about who we are and i believe you know we suffer from ethnocide you know it's a form of genocide and my interest is strongly in learning our culture and being reconnected to our families and our stories we deserve that and the only way that we can really learn that stuff is first for the story to be told that these are slave trade bronzes then we have, you know, at least a century of scholarship that has to unfold uh, for us to learn more about who we are using those relics. So that's 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 what we're hoping for. That's the goal to keep the 16th and 19th century relics here and in all the places where we live as a result of uh, being enslaved. Germany for my daughter because that's her homeland as well. Uh, and lots of uh, descendants of enslaved Africans are in Germany because of the war. You know, a lot of uh, black soldiers have children over there. So, you know, this is the thing. We want access, we deserve access, and we want internships and employment at these museums and entrepreneurial opportunities. Thank you, Grace. Thank you so much for listening to Tall Poppy Talk. We'll see you next time. Feel free to check us out on socials, YouTube, and the website. Thanks for today's guest, and we'll see you all next time. Take care. Be kind.